and welcome to The Beautiful Burial Ground, a podcast by the conservation charity Caring for God's Acre. Here we explore the unique heritage within these sites, how they're cared for and the stories they reveal. This is the second of a series of episodes which were recorded while travel restrictions were in place, so they're just one person chatting. Soon we'll be having on-site visits and discussions with others. This week, Poppy is reading an article written by Anna Wilde, one of the God's Acre team. Anna has just completed an MA in Death, Religion and Culture. Join us to find out about anchorites and anchoresses, men and women who are walled into a cell attached to a church, to live a life of prayer and contemplation, a way of life that was popular in medieval times. We'll discover what they did, how they interacted with the community, and why someone would volunteer to live in an anchor hold. Fourteenth century lockdown. The life of an anchoress. Blog post written by Anna Wilde, Project Support Officer at Caring for God's Acre. During the 14th and the early part of the 15th century, a not uncommon sight in the local churchyard was that of a small building, usually extending outwards from the north-facing wall of the church. The extension would have a door from the churchyard to the inside, and a small window covered with thick hessian, preventing anyone from seeing inside. On the interior wall, there was another window, called a squint, which had a view of the church interior and the altar. Inside the cell lived an anchorite, a man, or more usually a woman, who had taken a vow to be segregated from society and to devote their life to God with prayer, fasting, and a spiritual quest to achieve fusion with Christ through these activities. Plain, mainly vegetarian food was eaten, and in the earlier years of the movement, self-punishment such as whipping oneself or starving was common, although this was discouraged during the late medieval period. We know all these details as the instruction book that anchorites obeyed, called the Ancrene Wees, has survived down the centuries. Written by an anonymous monk around 1225, the book contains a great deal of detail and advice as how the anchoress should live, including many warnings about being seen by men and how sin of thought, word and deed could derail the anchoress by causing her to break her vows. A lot of attention was given to sins of the flesh, sexual desire, and how to avoid it. Confession was made on a regular basis to a visiting priest, and the anchoress was urged to include every detail when confessing. The priest, too, was meant to encourage these confessions, to tease out of the penitent all the sinful details to understand her level of contrition. Only the truly contrite could be given absolution, the forgiveness of sins, 
without which she would never enter heaven. Time spent in the anchor hold was seen as time spent in lieu of years in purgatory, the place that was believed to be where the dead went to make up for sins committed in this life. Purgatory was a place of atonement, where, by the perpetrator suffering terrible torments, most ordinary sins could be forgiven until the person was released to heaven. Reducing the amount of time spent there by suffering the constraints of the anchor hold in this earthly life was a positive benefit to the recluse. To be accepted as an anchoress, the prospective recluse would apply to the bishop with proof of her calling, which he would have to approve. A sponsor would have to be found to pay for her physical requirements, food, clothing, heating material, and wages for her servants, who would visit at least daily to cook, clean, and dispose of the chamber pot. Some maid servants would actually live with the anchoress within the anchor hold to support her and occasionally to take her place if she died. Unlike admission to a convent reserved only for those who could pay for entry, anyone from any walk of life could be an anchoress. Contemporaneous records tell us of one who was the daughter of a shoemaker and one who was the niece of a yeoman or landholder. To a woman with a spiritual calling, the life of the anchoress was not only something to aspire to, with a concomitant rise in status, but it also allowed for a degree of freedom. The provision of personal space, adequate food and private accommodation, time to spend on prayer and scriptural study, Advancement in status and involvement in community were all potentially seen as a promotion to the lifestyle of many poorer women. Additionally, the freedom from the sexual demands of men, including the personal risks of dying associated with the birth of children and the emotional pain of the likely deaths of those children, may have been viewed as a merciful escape by women of the time. The anchoress would, once her application had been approved, take part in her own requiem mass, at the end of which she was led to the anchor hold for the enclosing. The usual prayers for the dead and dying were said, for this was indeed a death of sorts, a social death, and a death to self, where her own wishes were subsumed by obedience to God. On entry to her cell, she would often find her grave already dug for her, a reminder that she would never leave. The Ancrene Wheeze suggests that the recluse should contemplate her death daily, even going so far as to kneel and pray in the open grave. To the modern listener, this sounds like an act of madness to be shut away from family and friends, to never be able to walk in the fresh air or make choices about daily activities. But to the people of that time, 
The anchoress was a person with great standing in society. Someone who could give spiritual counsel and prayer on behalf of the person who would seek her advice through her covered window. Given that any woman of any class could apply to be an anchorite, the vocation held the certainty of a room of one's own, with food provided daily, a servant or even two, the knowledge that you were engaged upon serious work, and, for some, a vast uplift in social status. Even the anchor hold itself was not always spatially small, although this probably was the case in the earlier years, circa 1100 CE, of the Anchoritic movement, into the early 15th century, the Ancrene Wees suggested a minimum of three rooms, and some anchor holds had an enclosed garden too. Praying formed a large part of the daily activity, with reading from scripture and lives of the saints also recommended to help to pass the time. Some embroidery and light sewing, and the company of the servant, although pointless chatter was frowned upon, would also while away the time. Occasionally, two or three women occupied the same anchor hold. The choice of this lifestyle may well have been very appealing to a certain type of woman, dependent on class. For an independently-minded woman, the threat of an early death with constant childbearing, or the prospect of striving to keep her family housed and fed, may have been enough for her to choose instead the peace of the anchorhold where she could live her life in prayerful contemplation, with her bodily needs provided for by her patron and her maidservants. From her cell, she could contemplate and commune with the divine, if she was fortunate enough to have a garden, sitting and reading scripture and some occasional light sewing whilst having those improving conversations, may have been a peaceful way to live out her years. So, the life of solitude was one part of the anchoress's duties. In contrast, the other part involved being highly connected to the community. With most anchor holds attached to a parish church, those parishioners in need of prayer or guidance would visit standing outside her window to ask for advice. The window would be curtained, but although chatter was prescribed, improving conversation was allowed, and one can imagine that at times speech was not just reserved for prayerful essentials. The anchoress would steer a careful course not to be seen to be teaching the gospel, as this was forbidden. But, nonetheless, the increase in social status and the reverence she was held in by the community must have been quite powerful in a society where women were not commonly held in high esteem. The church and the graveyard over which the anchor hold often looked, along with its daily reminder of death, 
was the central focus of the village, and there would usually be a daily mass, plus three on Sunday, and additional services on feast days. These feast days might have special events, such as processions, rogation tide, candle mass, palm Sunday, and various non-liturgical events, such as markets and fairs, would be held in the graveyard too. In addition to all these activities, there would be baptisms and churching of women after childbirth, a ritual allied to purification and thanksgiving for safe delivery, and, of course, funerals, which involved the corpse usually lying inside the church overnight, watched over by their praying relatives. The anchoress, peering from her squint into the church, would certainly have had plenty to observe, and likewise if she looked out into the busy graveyard from her earthly home. One can see that having the discipline to pray and read scripture with so much to distract her was where the real self-control was needed. The most well-known anchoress in Britain is arguably Julian of Norwich, Named after the church where her anchor hold was situated, St Julian's, her real name is not known. Aged around 30, Julian was close to death from an unspecified illness. She miraculously recovered and wrote of her vision whilst ill, a revelation where she sees Jesus on the cross and has a conversation with him. The vision taking place upon her deathbed brings her closer to God, a transcendence strived for by the anchoress. Throughout the revelation, Christ assures her of his love for and forgiveness of humankind. This contrasts strongly with the common message of the time, which centred more on the wickedness of humankind, sin and punishment than on the love of God. Julian wrote down her visions and published them as a revelation of divine love, finished before 1412 and often referred to as the first book in English written by a woman. There are very few surviving anchor holds, a large number were destroyed at the Reformation when the practice of becoming an anchorite was condemned and cells were knocked down. Searching the internet brings up a few photographs of what remains, sometimes a window or occasionally details of an archaeological excavation including the bones of the recluse buried within. An example at Anchor's House Museum at St Mary and St Cuthbert Anglican Church in Durham remains, and there is a shrine at the site of Julian's cell in Norwich, which is open for visitors daily when lockdown lifts. Thank you for joining us this week. Before listening to Anna, I had no idea what an anchoress was, so I really enjoyed learning about this fascinating aspect of churchyard history.
We have plans to join Anna on site for more episodes in the future. Thank you.